Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joining today, he's a Marine veteran, five-time national physique champion, entrepreneur. It's Jake Thomas. How are you doing today, Jake? I'm great, Alex. Thanks for having me on today. How are you, my man? Doing good. We are so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we'd like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what you like doing growing up. I'm originally from New Orleans. That's where I was born and raised, grew up, uh, played sports as a kid, had lots of friends, loved getting dirty in the neighborhood, uh, playing in the river or the lake rather by my house and uh, had a good childhood with a lot of people in my life, around my life, social butterfly, a lot of energy and uh, blossomed into a good, uh, you know, after that middle school, high school, again, extension of friends through sports and adventure and then found myself into the loving arms of the Marine Corps, not too long after high school. What were those sports that you played growing up? Pretty much all the ball sports. So anything with the ball, football, baseball, basketball, if I could throw it, kick it, or otherwise, <laughs> you know, do something with it. <laughs> I was pretty good with it, but soccer was probably my number one. And then uh, track in both high school and college. You like the running events. Soccer is a lot of running tracks. Unless did you do like the field part or was it a certain signature event in track? No, I was a sprinter. I ran the uh, the 200 and the 400. The 400 was my favorite though. What did you like about doing those sports? Was there something that drew your attention that I like this a lot more than the other ones? Because you mentioned you're an outdoors kind of person. You like anything to be active, things like that. But what drew you to those? The team's aspect of team sports I loved, right? The camaraderie, being there with your friends who eventually become your teammates. And within that, you know, it's like your little family. So that that was always fun and being able to contribute to something bigger than me, you know, mm-hmm. it was cool. But at the same time, it was just the love of the game, man. Like I fucking love football or soccer. I loved baseball. I loved sports. I love to compete more than anything. So being able to do that at levels with other people was, was just cool. And then track, it's almost the opposite side of that, right? Where it's just you yeah. and you're alone and it's just nothing but the other competitors around and you go into your own mindset and headspace to like you either are running to something, maybe running away from something. So it was kind of the the mentality that comes along with it that I really fell in love with, especially later in the career. Did it teach you anything about yourself that you didn't know you had in you? For sure. Um, fears, you know, how to address and account for fears because I was always skinny. As a kid, as a as a younger kid, I was smaller than everybody. I weighed less. I was shorter. And as we progressed in age, in soccer especially, guys were starting to shave and they had like hairy legs. And I was like, you know, my voices hadn't even cracked yet. So I was I was super intimidated. But I was fast. And that was a big leg up in uh, soccer because I got on a lot of teams that I didn't really belong on, number one, because I was left-footed. That was huge. And then number two, I was fast. And I found out quickly, like, okay, these guys might have beards, and I think that's cool. And their legs are hairier than mine, and their voices are deeper. And I'm intimidated by that, but, like, I can use my speed to my advantage. And it was right away that I started to learn how, you know, what assets I had outweighed the deficiencies that maybe I saw in myself. And then the same thing in track. You know, I'm running against guys in New Orleans that are some of the national running track athletes like nationally ranked track athletes that are going to eventually big schools d1 and then some of these guys play in the nfl and other sports it's like these dudes are seriously fast i mean olympic speed and here i am at the private school like getting in the block same thing i'm like these dudes have beards their muscles are bigger than mine 
this is not where I want to be, but same thing. Like there was that teamsmanship on the line where everybody looks at each other and they're just like, you ready to do this? And I remember this one time, this guy next to me, um, his name is Skylar Green. Dude was blazing fast. He was amazing. A guy I looked up to because he was just such an icon on the on the track and field, eventually played in the NFL. He looked at me as we were lining up next to each other. And in my mind, I'm like, I can't believe I'm lined up next to this dude right now. And he just looks at me. He's like, you ready for this big dog? You know? And in my mind, I was like, uh, I guess so. <laughs> you know, but just learning uh, about things in yourself and le- leaning into fear and being okay to be afraid and being afraid, acknowledging that. And that's to me what the definition of courage is. So maybe a little bit of courage you know, throughout the struggle. It's kind of that kind of strength and weakness concept where the weakness might have been, well, you're not big enough. You're not, you didn't have that kind of older mentality look, but your strengths were you're fast. You kind of found those kind of things that you specialized in and you still went for it. You didn't give up in those situations You and you enjoyed it. So you weren't going to just say, yeah, I'm not going to run today. He's too fast. I You wanted to get out there and enjoy it. For sure. For sure. You know, I always say like, well, I didn't get dressed up for nothing. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. I'm, he- I'm here, right? I might as well try to win. So it didn't really matter who was next to me or what the defender that I was playing against in soccer, how much taller he was than me or how much more mature he was uh, at that age in his life. To me, I was like, I'm here. I might as well compete. And if I'm going to compete, I might as well try to win. A big part of your journey now is fitness. Was this the first time doing those sports that you got really into fitness, kind of working out and stuff? Not so much uh, in the conventional sense, sense of the weight room. But for sure, as far as an understanding my body, it's proprioception, you know, it's awareness of its time and space and how I could use it and what my strengths were. And for sure, speed, agility, quickness. Mm -hmm. I wasn't the strongest per se at lifting weights, but pound for pound strength, like I started to understand what I was good at and what I could do. And so the focus on sports and athletic performance, especially started back then, even I'd say before I was like 10 years old, starting to realize these things. And then as I progressed in each of those sports respectively, especially in track later on, I started to learn how I could use my physicality as I developed better and then create intimidation with that. Because on the track, so many of those races are won before they ever even start. And just being able to understand that became, you know, I took a page from the Skylar Green book and looked at guys on the line next to me when I was finally developed. And I was like, you ready for this big dog? You know, like, and here I am saying that now. So your teacher, you know, or student eventually becomes a teacher kind of thing. As you were growing up, did you have anyone that was a mentor or inspiration to you? My godfather, I would say for sure. He was a, a former uh, team guy or SEAL uh, in the Navy, and he did some really cool work uh, as a contractor and a bodyguard in Mexico City back in the 90s, like when it was crazy wild down there and always good with his hands really good looking guy life of the party could get around anyone and, and just be suave. But at the same time, he was so mechanical in how he thought and, and the way he did things. We always used to joke and call him MacGyver or Indiana Jones. Cause he, he loved history and he loved to be able to make knots and ropes and little traps and toys and just a tinkerer. And, um, that was the guy that I looked up to a lot. Yeah. Is there anything that he said did that you utilize today? Yeah, I remember when I was going uh, into the Marine Corps, he just told me, don't ever quit. You know, when you remove the option of quitting from your choices, 
it's not an option. And he told me about the difference between option A and option B. And I didn't understand at the time, but if you are given two choices and let's say one of them for sure is failure. And he explained it to me by way of panic and fear. He said, panic is deadly. Fear is healthy, right? So if you're presented in a situation and you panic, panic will only result in failure or will only result in making whatever situation that is worse. So the only real option you have is fear, Mm -hmm. meaning you still might fail. You still might perish, die, whatever it might be. But the potential of succeeding outweighs the guarantee of not. And so he was kind of teaching me how to micromanage stress uh, in an, in situations. And like, I take that to this day. I teach people the same thing. I impress that upon friends and family and otherwise, but fear is healthy. Panic is deadly. And that's something that so many people can utilize today. Because if someone says they haven't feared anything or they're not stressing about something, they're probably not telling the truth because we all will have that in our bodies sometimes. Yeah. And then back to the word I use for fear, it's healthy. Yeah. You know, it's literally, it's healthy because you're acknowledging that you're having accountability. You're having honesty with yourself, the situation, the circumstance, whatever it might be to say, you're never afraid. I mean, I don't want to call you fallible or, you know, (laughs) not having integrity. I'd like to just maybe see the the test at the end of that score, you know, (laughs) was going into the Marine Corps always the game plan for you or did you have a dream job somewhere else definitely not uh in the game plan for sure i always had like a fascination or uh, an awe of the military um pilots and astronauts soldiering like that just the character and, and kind of appeal of it to me as a kid i wanted to be an astronaut i thought that was super cool i thought space was cool i thought all that was cool I wanted to be Michael Jordan. I wanted to be a Michael Jackson. Um, I don't know. You know, had some good fabled heroes, but the Marine Corps came calling to me just by way of boredom in life. I didn't like where I was personally, what undergraduate education was doing for me at the time or was not doing for me at the time and where I didn't see myself going and um, family life wasn't great. And that was actually a place of comfort to me. You know, seeing, I was like, oh, I'd rather go, you know, blow shit up and play in the dirt. Like that sounds way cooler than being home and, you know, not seeing my future develop the way I wanted to. Was it kind of a way to get a fresh start, a new beginning, a new chapter in a way in your book that you were sharing? A hundred percent. I mean, did I think about that so much? I don't know. But like, as soon as I got there, I was like, oh yeah, this is a radically fresh start for sure. <laughs> you know, from the moment the the clippers hit your hair and you get your head shaved and you're getting screamed at and told to be here and having to move with speed, volume and intensity everywhere. Like I was like, okay, well we, we got here. So I guess we might as well, same thing. We might as well compete and we might as well try to win. You know, that, that immediate wash of anxiety that takes place of like, Oh God, what did I get into? (laughs) You know, like they, they believed me. They actually took me like, oh, can I go home now? Yeah. You know, but once you're there, you're there. So talk about the first few months. What was going through your mind? What challenges were tough for you? God, you know, it's so funny, man. Like as challenging as it was, Alex, Forrest Gump, the movie, 
so eloquently puts about how to handle yourself when you're, when you know, he's talking about being in the army and he says, you know, if you, you move real fast, you make your bed straight, you do what you're told and you answer everything with yes, drill sergeant, you know, mm-hmm. to, to quote the film. It's literally like that so much. Like the orders you're given are very simple and your adherence to them. That's where the difficulty or the ease comes into play. But the matter of fact, meaning the objectivity of the orders is that they are simple and your job, your responsibility is just to execute them as they're given. And it's amazing how easily people mess that up and how frequently people mess that up. And I just always kept kind of playing in my mind, like, yes, drill sergeant, do what they say fast, be, be, you know, do your job right, do it the way they say to do it, have attention to detail. And that's what I did. And I never really got messed with because of that. Now I got messed with because I had to pay for other people's mistakes and that just happens, you know, it's part of being there. It's part of being a leader and having ownership and accountability. But as far as in my months and whatnot, like it was an adventure, man. I took every day as like another day of, of wonder and awe and curiosity and exploratory, just, Oh my God, what are they going to freaking do to me today? You know, like yesterday was a putting uh, mashed potatoes in my cargo pockets because somebody was eating too slowly. And the next day it's like, bury your head in the sand because somebody was doing something else. I was like, these guys come up with the most cryptic freaking games to, you know, demean us with and belittle us with. And the words they use are, are, I don't know. It was, I don't want to say it was so funny to call it comical, but it's a genius sequence of events that results in taking someone who's a total you know, long haired, whatever, otherwise oblivious civilian. And in 13 weeks time, they churn out a freaking guaranteed United States Marine. So there's some kind of method to the madness there. Did it challenge you based on physicality? Like you were an athlete before and they really test your strength, both physically, mentally, and emotionally. Did you kind of see a growth in that for you during that time? For sure. So I, in recruit training, all the physical stuff was, was fun to me, to be honest. I loved it. I, I did well at it. The only difficult parts I would say in, in most training is usually swimming for mo- for many people. Um, because there's such a, an understanding of the water and, and to have to be able to be afraid and be okay with it, because it's one thing to swim casually mm-hmm. lap swim or just, you know, for recreation, but when you're trying to learn how to drown proof yourself and have to do things with weight and, and learn a certain type of stroke and how to maintain like inflation of your lungs, it can get really tricky and scary really fast because you might be real tough on the land. You might not be afraid of heights and do the cargo ropes and all this stuff, but like the water can make people scared real fast. And that was something I had to learn real quick um, before I became a good swimmer. During that time, is there a moment that you remember that has played a big impact in your life now? Mm, like during uh, the training or like during the, the recruitment process or like just any time in the, anytime during your time with the enlistment. Party. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, so many, man, you know, I would say the greatest thing I learned there was the limits of adverbial extreme of human condition, meaning I was never the happiest. I was never the saddest. Mm-hmm. I was never the most hungry. I was never the most tired. I was never the thirstiest. I was never the most 
not thirsty, having my thirst so quenched, you know? So like every kind of extreme of human condition is experienced there for sure. The happiness when the most full, the most tired, Oh God, uh, the most sick, you know, anything you can put an extreme to, you learn it there because you go through it once, if not multiple freaking times, which in a way is great because you remember those bad experiences as to be able to compare them to yep. things in life to where you're just like, I mean, I'm pretty sick today, but it was nothing like ba 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 ba, right? Yeah. Or boy, this was a great moment, but it was nothing like ba 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 ba. In that sense, it can almost be detrimental because you get so happy or you learn to have such a good meal or you're so satisfied, satiated with an experience or your, your sleep was so good. And that was a big thing that I struggled with for years after I got out was, was how poor my sleep was because when you learn to be, to go to sleep so exhausted, just emotionally, adrenally drained, the sleep you get is, is freaking incomparable. And so for me, that's what kind of led me to drugs and alcohol at one point was because I just could not get to that level of like, oh, and so I used things to medicate to try to recreate that. And so, yeah, there were good things that came from those extremes and then also things that became challenges later in life. Did you have an idea of how long you wanted to serve or did you kind of just take it year by year or moment by moment and you got to a point where you were ready for that next chapter? When I first got there, man, honestly, I thought I was going to be there forever. I remember telling my friends, my parents, like I found it. I found my purpose. I found my calling, my community, everything, the the, the warrior ethos and the embodiment of what the Marine Corps stands for and the, the principles, the core principles of honor, courage, and commitment and just to have that, you know, identity, I really felt connected to it. And then I got in some trouble a few years into my enlistment and the way it was handled, my trouble, so to speak, really, really broke my heart and put a bad stain in my mouth, uh, unfortunately, to where the Marine Corps was and to where I saw it going. And this was, you know, almost 20 years ago. So I'll, I'll give you a quick you know, a bridge version of the story. I was coming back onto base with some friends and we'd been out drinking. We were all legally drinking, but this one base that we were stationed at at the time had certain gates that you could only come through at certain hours. And the one that our vehicle was parked at was closed at the time, but our barracks was very close to this gate, just on the other side of it. Whereas there was another gate quite a distance away, like several miles away. And our barracks was Far, far from that gate as well. We had a very early formation the next day because we were going to a grenade range of all things. And we had to be there at like, you know, 0430 or something like that. And it's like 345. And we're coming from an all night drinking thing and da 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 da. We can't drive to the other gate. So we're like, all right, we're either going to run for it and, you know, make it in a couple of miles and then run to the barracks. So it's probably like a four or five mile run. And we got you know, 50 minutes to do it. I was like, guys, we can, we can do this. Like we're in shape. It's going to suck because we're drunk, but like we can do it and then have to change and get into formation to go to the grenade range. And then I had the brilliant idea of like, or we can just try to scale this fence right here, <laughs> this other closed gate and, uh, you know, run right through the woods right there and get to the barracks. Well, we, we did that. Of course, unfortunately I was the senior man. It was my decision. First guy goes over the fence. Second guy's over the fence. Or I was the second guy. I get over the fence. As soon as I get over the fence, woo, woo, all the police came out and uh, took us down right there. You know, so luckily we didn't get shot or killed. 
which is good. But after the arrest, the base police turned us over to our command and said, we're not going to charge them. No, nothing pressed criminally or otherwise you guys can handle it. And so rather than what I thought would have been the move to be like, all right, we're going to haze the piss out of you. It's the Marine Corps. We're going to kick you around. We're going to make you scrub toilet. Like all discipline me, discipline me, make me pay, make me suffer, humiliate me, tar and feather me, whatever. But instead they took my rank completely away, took away pay for like a crazy amount of time, restriction to the barracks, to my room for a crazy amount of time because they could. And because there was a bad taste in their mouths about me for me declining to accept a, a new billet that they tried to offer me, which would have been more of an administrative role in taking me out of the role of an active duty person, which I was currently doing. And I didn't want to leave my team and my guys and have to serve in the more administrative clerical sense. And I bucked on that when it was tried to get, when they tried to issue me that. And so this was, I think, retribution to that. And it, it just really broke my my spirit because I was such a stellar Marine at the time. I'd been meritoriously promoted to every rank. I was invited by our command uh, sergeant major to go to the Super Bowl, like as a representative of our command at the time to the Super Bowl in Jacksonville, Florida in 2005, just before this. So I was the guy. I was the poster boy. And for them to treat me or what I thought I was like that so just expendably, I was like, well, I don't want to be part of this anymore. This isn't cool. Was it the right decision? I don't know. But so I felt at the time. So after that moment, that was where it started going, where you're leaving or going away. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I totally shut down after that. I, I still had two years to, left in my enlistment, but like I'd, I was already checked out. You know, I had plans for special operations and, and all these other things that I was wanting to get into to that I had been training for essentially, you know, since I got in there, I was always like, make sure my marks are good. Make sure my physical uh, fitness performance is good. My right, my rifle shooting, my pistol shooting, like all the things you need to get into these more elite and serious units. That's what I was working for. And that's who I saw mm -hmm. myself as again, it was to me, it was always about competing. It was always about being great. And like, that is a beautiful thing about the military is that you are always trying to get promoted. Yep. You know, they incentivize the hell out of it. And, one of the best reasons for that is so that not everybody else around you that outranks you can tell you what to do, right? Like, yes, it is for self-advancement, but it's also so that, you know, Alex, because he outranks me by a rank or two, can't say, Jake, you know, take your hands out of your pockets. Don't do this. Don't. It's like, fuck, I can't argue with him. As opposed to like, hey, we're the same rank. Now you can't tell me to do that anymore, you know? Mm -hmm. But I didn't have that foresight then. I was young and stupid. I was barely 21 years old and and still afraid of the world and didn't really know what I, you know was going on. And made the decision impulsively to do the fence maneuver. And then, uh, you know, like I said, I was weak minded and didn't know how to handle the, uh, aftermath of that. And just totally, you know, nosedive from there. You talked about earlier about getting into drugs and alcohol after going, making the transition. What challenges did you face going through that? A lot of times did it lead to an addiction? Did it lead to a downward spiral? Did it, people notice a change in your behavior? Um, I don't know. I was really good about masking it, to be honest. Um, I was always good about being able to hide the pain that I was going through and what it was doing to me. And I realized that real quick that if I could look healthy, people would assume I was healthy. Right. Mm -hmm. So that meant being in shape physically. That meant being tan, 
being t- literally being tan because I found a pattern of things with people, whether they're addicts or alcoholics or users or whatever, you know, the first thing that most people do is they start to recluse themselves, right? So they're not around people. They're not in the sunlight. So they get whiter, they get pastier, they aren't in the gym anymore. So they're getting skinnier, frailer, like all those things to kind of like associate with weakness to where people say, well, I didn't, I never thought about it. And it's like, dude, the guy was wasting away. He's emaciated, never saw the light of day for months. Like, what did you think he was doing? As opposed to, hey, he's always in good shape. He's always smiling. He's always seems to have color on his skin from the sun. And I was like, mm, aha, you know, use that. Um, But it was really about feeling disconnected with the world when I got out and still being angry about what had happened and that feeling like I lost my shot. You know, mm-hmm. and that I'd given up what I thought I'd given up so much to go there or I'd foregone so much to be there and then to have felt cheated or otherwise, you know, just not treated right. Or uh, I don't know how to describe that, but I was I was angry. And so I took it out on myself. I took it out on the people around me and I took it out on the world as like, you know, a, a scorched earth rampage. Did it ever get to a breaking point where you could have done serious harm to yourself going through all that? Totally. Um, From 2012 to about to 2015. I mean, even before that, well, so let's say before that, from the time I got out, I always had a gun on me. I always carried a gun either on my person or in my vehicle. I was always armed. It's just a thing. You know, and especially where in New Orleans, like a lot of people do it too. And in the South as well, it's, it's, you know, part of our, our pride. And when I started really using heavily drugs, particularly cocaine, I would a lot of times still be carrying either on my person or in my vehicle and also be in possession of a controlled dangerous substance or CDS a la cocaine. Well, I didn't know this at the time. I mean, obviously I knew having one and the other is probably not a good thing, but I was just so, you know, you start off little by little, right? Like one day I just, oh, hey, I happen to have my gun with me and I got a bag of blow. It's probably not a good thing, but eh, fuck it, whatever. And then eventually it just became so normalized to me that like I always had a gun on me and I always had a bag on me, but I was so thick in it that I didn't really like, you know, think about it. And then one day my brother, who's the attorney, in the family, the smart guy. He's like, we were talking about something and I don't know if it was while he was in law school or other, it might've been when he was in law school and he was talking about different uh, cases and different uh, bits of law, codes of law, proceedings, meaning like, you know, this means this, it means that. And then he's quoting it all to him and he's super smart. And I'm like, damn dude, fucking killing it, man. You know, making me feel stupid. And he told me that in Louisiana, it is a mandatory minimum 10-year sentence to have a firearm and a CDS at the same time, controlled dangerous substance, minimum 10 years. So meaning if I were to ever have gotten arrested whilst possessing the firearm and the CDS, minimum 10 years. That's not to say driving drunk on top of that. That's not to say whatever else might have happened on top of that. But a minimum of 10 years. And to think back of all the days, all the nights, all the drives that I made, under the influence of that, under the influence of the bottle, on pills, like with the gun, dude, that's a lot of bullets dodged. Like pun intended, man. Was that the first time you kind of thought, I have to change? 
something is just hearing that you could go to jail for 10 years or at least a minimum of 10 years. Like you don't want to take that risk. I'm trying to think what, what uh, event really took it. It really happened for me to, you know, get hit in the forehead with the hammer, but it was probably when I moved from New Orleans to New York and couldn't take my firearms because it's mm-hmm. a different state. It's a different, you know, <laughs> structure up there politically. And I didn't have a vehicle. I, I sold my vehicle as soon as I got up there. So it kind of like worked itself out, meaning I was no longer driving and I no longer had uh, a firearm. Still had drugs and even more so. But that was kind of like where I really had the, I guess, eureka moment of like, wow, this is a lot better now to not have that liability. But all that did was make me push it further. You know, now it's just like, oh, I can take a bag anywhere with me. I don't have to worry about having a gun on me and I don't have to worry about driving. So like I can be more liberal and more cavalier. And so I was, you know, the bags got bigger. The frequency became more, um, you know, to eventually where it was like a thousand dollar a week habit, literally. And um, it took me to wake up in an elevator one morning uh, after a party that I don't remember being at and seeing a slew of messages on my phone of like, I can't believe you did this and that and da, 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 how dare you? I didn't hurt anyone physically, but I certainly embarrassed people and myself with uh, my behavior. But I woke up in my elevator with, a, you know, vomit all over my arm. And I was in the threshold of the elevator with the doors, like stuck trying to close on me and just the eh, like constant buzz of that. And I don't know how long I've been there, but I've clearly been there a while because all this stuff was caked and dry. And it just made me think like how many people (laughs) came through this that, you know, live in my place that passed and saw me there like this degenerate whatever. So in the grand scheme of things, was it that was that moment that it was my, you know, hey, wake up call that bad or, or anything? Maybe not. I guess luckily, thank God, no. You know, no one got physically hurt or harmed or something like that. But I think that moment is when I really reflected back on everything else and was finally like, oh, shit, man. I need to do something. You talked about masking it, so a lot of people didn't know. Did you end up telling people, like close ones, friends, family, about the last few years what you were going through? Or you were still trying to keep it hidden and just keep going forward unless somehow someone knew. I mean, I always kind of showed it as like, I'm just partying, you know, and I'm having a good time and I'm the guy that's got the drugs and like, I got the the friends and the pretty girls and I'll pay for everybody dinner, like anything that I could do to impress people and let them think or feel like I'm the man and I have it together. That was, that was literally what I was doing. Like there was a big part of me that I just want my friends to have fun too. That's very true. You know? And like, I didn't want to just party alone. I always be like, yeah, dude, have some, like uh, uh, the more people that do it with me, the more fun we all have together. But the more I did that, the more often I did that, the more that me having a good time required these external stimuli, the worse it got and the worse the the less joyful things were naturally, right? To where it was like, hey, Jake, do you want to come to dinner tonight with us? This is like casual dinner, right? I'm like, yeah, cool. What, what time? They're like, all right, we're going to be there at like seven. I'm like, perfect. I would make sure, you know, 
at 6.15, I'm getting my bags dropped off and making sure I can have stuff on me to be holding for the meal. And then, you know, running off to the bathroom, doing my thing, or whether it's going to see a friend of mine's band play on a Wednesday night and I want to do blow in the green room because I think it feel, it's cool. I just, I couldn't do anything anymore without drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, I couldn't just go and listen to music. I couldn't just go to a, a freaking movie. And then when I started sitting at home doing it, you know, alone, that's when I was like, dude, what the fuck are you doing? Like you're smoking cigarettes in the apartment that you're not supposed to do like at the building and you're doing lines of Coke, like all night on a Tuesday, just, and you have school tomorrow. Like this isn't cool anymore, you know? So I think there was just that snowball effect. Finally, when I woke up in the elevator that day, that it all was like, like, you know, the writing on the wall finally was all right in front of me and made me think differently. During this time, or even after, when did you start getting into fitness competitions? So the natural physique competition. Um, it was in New York. I had been riding at Soul Cycle um, downtown in, in the financial district, and one of my friends there that was an instructor, she was like, "You should try to do this, you know, competition bodybuilding thing." And I was like, "I don't want to do that. Like, why?" And, and another instructor was training or preparing for a show and I was in pretty good shape. Like back to that mask. Like I was in good enough shape to where a friend of mine was like, I mean, you're already pretty good. Like how much further do you need to go? You know, kind of thing. And, um, that's how it started. And I said, sure, why not? How hard can it be? And, you know, I got handed some humble pie real quick about how hard it can be. But that was the beginning of it. It was like 2016. With it being called natural, was it kind of hard making that lifestyle change to fit what that competition was all about? No, in that aspect, no. And this was so cool, luckily for me, because to compete in the WNBF or the World Natural Bodybuilding Federation, every competitor has to be natural, proven natural for 10 years prior to their first competition with the Federation. I knew none of this going into this, but like lucky for me, that was, you know, I was green. And I quickly realized this is why their pool of competitors is so small and why their popularity is not as big as say the IFBB or the International Federation of Bodybuilding because testing is different for those Mm -hmm. competitors. The requirement of being natural is much different for those competitors. So for this, you weed out a lot of people. You really thin the herd because you say, you know, someone says I'm natural and I've been natural for a year. It's like, what, a month, a year, five years. And it's like, no, you got to be natural for 10 years. And people say, well, how do they prove that? You literally have to take a freaking polygraph, Alex, before every competition. And I mean like finger strap, the thing on your forehead, chest seat sensor, like everything. And I remember my first one, taking the first one, the guy was like, dude, you're so nervous. Like, what's going on? I was like, because you can freaking flunk me and I don't get to compete. I'm scared. Yeah. He's like, well, do you have anything to hide? I was like, no, but this is fucking intense, man. You know, <laughs> like I've never done that before. And like it it was intense. And then when you win any of the competitions, you immediately have to take a urinalysis right after the, the show to where one of the judges literally holds you by the wrist and says, you know, you can't leave my site. We have to go do this immediately after. So like between the affidavit you sign, of course, anybody could forge that. 
but you sign an affidavit swearing, you know, you have not done dot, 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 you've adhered to dot, 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 the polygraph. And then if you win the urinalysis, I was like, man, this is badass, you know? So that was a huge, actually a uh, draw of, of attraction for me. I don't know. I'd be freaking out if I was strapped to a polygraph test. I mean, I was I'd definitely seen, freaking out. I'd see every contraption they have on you. <laughs> Even if I didn't have anything to hide, I'd be like, this is ridiculous. I feel like I'm getting interrogated by a police officer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And you get the questions beforehand. <laughs> oh, so like you, dude, you literally know the questions beforehand. It's it's a very simple list and they're all yes, no's, right? They can't have anything. We're like, well, kind of like it's no, it, you literally have the list. I think it was like seven or eight questions and they're all yes, no. But still, like the intensity of that room, like putting the things on your fingers, putting the thing on your chest, like putting the the headset on and then you're they're like okay sit on this chair but don't sit too hard because the sensors i'm like dude this is fucking crazy you know and i'm like malnourished because you're getting ready to go on stage and you typically take the polygraph either the day before or the day of right so you're like super lean and emaciated dehydrated and you're already like oh my god i'm really fresh (laughs) and now you got to sit through this like fear factor moment of tension it was just, it was crazy, dude. Like, and to do that, you know, I do that five times, five times <laughs> and I never got better at it. It was always, I was always like a mess. I was like, Oh God, here we go again with this shit. And like the guys would always laugh at me, whoever the administrators were. Cause they'd be like, dude, what is wrong with you? You're sweating. Your heart rate's gone. I was like, cause this is scary, man. Like what the hell, you know? But you would think was, by the next time, oh, I, I'll pass this. No, I don't think it's easier for anyone, especially. I never got better at it. I never, <laughs> it never got easier for me. That's for sure. As a five-time champion, did you always feel like you were going to try something different in the way you worked out, the way you eat to kind of test yourself or try to grow as an individual? Because after a certain while, you just, you don't, you're in that routine constantly, but did you try anything different every time? Totally, 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 totally. So the first uh, competition I was in, I adhered exactly to what my coach had prescribed as far as in the training uh, program and the nutrition. The next one, uh, I'd modified it slightly in my nutrition, meaning the first one I stuck strictly to the macronutrients that were prescribed. Uh, I didn't eat anything processed. I didn't say, oh, well, I'll just squeeze this in and do this and that. Like I was, it was all whole foods. It was all strictly as it was written. Did it, you know, totally disciplined. The next time I said, all right, now I'm going to utilize what's called if it fits your macros. And that's like a, you know, an industry term and certainly a urban dictionary phrase that a lot of people understand to where let's say you need to eat a certain amount of calories. And within those calories are certain macronutrients or a breakup of protein, fat, and carbohydrates. Well, you can technically eat to the macros if it fits your macros with a myriad of junk food. And I did that for the second competition. I was like, all right, well, I can eat this Rice Krispie treat, like basically fitting in things for pleasure that macrobiotically were balanced, but in no way were they microbiotically like good, meaning like my vitamins were all messed up. My minerals were all messed up. The enzymes were inadequate to what I was trying to do. My my hormones got screwed up from it. But again, the macros were right to where like, you know, I was like, oh, I can go to, I'm from New Orleans. So like, you know, I love Popeye's Louisiana Louisiana kitchen. 
So I would go to Popeye's and get strips of their um, tenders. And you can get them uh, blackened so they're not battered. So I'd be like, oh, this is all white meat, chicken breast. And like I would do the macros for that and be like, okay, plus the sauce, da, 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 da. So was I hitting the macros? Yes, of course. But what's the quality of the food that I was eating, right? As opposed to like eating optimal, very high quality foods, I was eating whatever I wanted because it was to the macros. So that was my next one. Then, and this is where it gets really fun, I got wind of like like vegan bodybuilding and veganism in general because of a girl I was dating at the time. And the same reason I was a vegetarian for over a year, it was a girl that I was dating at the time. And this girlfriend kind of got me into it. And I was like, all right, cool. Let's, let's, we start eating this way. I started eating this way with her. It keeps the fridge, you know, and grocery shopping a lot easier. And then when my next show came up, I was like, well, I might as well take a shot at it as a vegan because now I'm in like a super small group of people because there was not a lot of people doing it. And people even didn't know you could do it because of how, what they assumed to be difficult, it would be to get the right balance again of macronutrients. And then I was like, oh man, now I got to do it because people are saying I can't, ah, right. (laughs) And so then I did it as a vegan and I actually had my best performance as a vegan where I finished third in the world championships, uh, in 2019 for the WNBF. And that was as a vegan man, which went against the grain for a lot of people thinking you could do it, but I really just wanted to prove the point. And um, then did, you know, a couple of other shows, one against IFBB competitors in the IFBB where I was, again, natural against the enhanced and still finished second in one of those shows, which I was like, it's probably one of the more proud things I am of having done because it's like really stepping into something that is, I should have not won in because of what you're up against technically. And to come away with a silver against those guys who are, you know, for sure enhanced, I was like, man, it's pretty sweet. So defying norms i'm all about it you know you tell me i can't do something i'm like okay i gotta at least like scratch that itch now you know so curiosity was my really the entry into each of those different uh competitions and feeling and intuition and just saying let's try this okay they say i can't do it now we gotta really do it you know yeah did you kind of notice a similarity between the process of training workout that kind of lifestyle with being in bodybuilding to how you were in the military with like the strict guidelines and stuff. Did you see that similarity that you kind of felt natural being in? Absolutely. You know, and I'm, I love that you asked that question because everybody that saw that they're like, God, man, you're so disciplined. You're so disciplined you, to adhere to the structure, the timeliness of it, the preparation required. And I never saw it that way. So maybe that was because of that, you know, that, that discipline by definition, of the Marine Corps is the instant willing obedience to orders. And I was able to do that. You know, like my coach would say, do this, this way, do it. You know, I'm like, Roger that like to yeah. the T I would never vary. I would never deviate. He would say this meal, this time, these things, like I was like, you know, militant about it, which is how I am now as I coach people, because that's how I was. You know, I didn't need the coach to tell me these things and for me to be this way. It wasn't like he was forcing that on me. I simply read the program the way it was written and interpreted that as follow the program as it's written. That's what you're paying me for, right? And it's the same thing now where where I issue things to people, orders, programs, habits, or otherwise, and say like, follow it the way it's written and you can't mess it up. Deviate, 
and that's on you. And that's why I can literally guarantee the freaking results with people. Meaning like all you have to do is do exactly what I tell you to do. And X is going to happen. Guaranteed. If you shift that one iota, all bets are off. Meaning everything is a perfect linear equation. X plus Y equals Z. If you do this plus this, this will happen. Eat this way, work out this way, follow this habit. This is going to happen guaranteed. Well, what if I, no, stop. I didn't say that. I said X plus Y equals Z, not X squared over four minus square root of five, you know, exponent of 10. Does that still equal Z? Maybe, but that's a lot harder to freaking solve than the formula that I gave you. Right. So yeah, I was definitely militant about it. And I think I drew that from my time in the core. I see that with athletes where they'll do something where they're so structured or how they performed, how they played the game. And then when they come out of it, they have that same mentality and anything they do in their career and their lives as with family, they kind of keep that similarity. And I think there's nothing wrong with that because if it works for that person, they should be able to do it. They shouldn't have to change just because they're not in that system or in that mindset at the time that they're doing it and kind of like how you are you took something that worked for you and you're seeing that results with maybe your clients that you are working with because results show from previous experiences and you want to bring that to your clients i mean now yes but even before whether it was when i was working at a bar when i first got out of the marine corps or in the oil field after the bar i started off throwing away trash with, you know, 18 year old kids when I just got out of the Marine Corps and, you know, I thought I was the man. Right. Mm -hmm. But I worked my way up at the bar, throwing away trash. And what did I do? I just did it the best. I was fast. I was efficient. I was wanting to learn. I wanted to know why show me how to do this job, that job, like always excelling for promotion again from the military. That's something you're remember. You don't want to be told what to do by everybody that outranks you. So how do you do that? You, you outrank them. Yep. So every job I've ever had, I've always wanted to know more, wanted to get promoted, done whatever I could to advance, advance, advance. Same thing in the oil field, advance, advance, advance. And then in real estate in New York and in Miami, I saw it as a competitive advantage, meaning I can literally put my discipline, my militant kind of mindset to work in the sense of like, okay, I can combine this with physicality and meaning if I can run across the street faster than you, Alex, it could be the difference in a deal or not. If I can use the city bike to get around and serve and see more places within the same amount of time as you, that's going to drive my efficiency higher. So that's what I was finding angles with, not to mention the planning, the mission planning, the route reconnaissance is so similar to what we would do in operations in the, in the military. You know, we have this acronym called OSMIAC, and every Marine listening to this is going to laugh, but Orientation, Situation, Mission, Execution, Admin, and Logistics, Command, and Signal. Orientation. Where are we? What's the map? What's the layout? What's the direction we're going in? Situation. Who are they? What's the adversary? You know, what are we up against? Mission. What's our job? What's our purpose? How are we going to, like, execute this, or what are we supposed to do? Is it, you know, search and seizure, evade and egress, da 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 capture and kill? We don't know execution how are we going to go about doing it right mm-hmm. what's the order to do what are the warning orders what are the, the deadly force authorization like kind of permission and escalation of force admin and logistics 
Who do we have for support? Who's going to be our uh, backup team for XYZ? Who do we call if we get in trouble? And then command and signal, meaning we have a challenge and password for like, hey, don't shoot me and the password is blue or, or red team go or something like that. And I would break down my days or structure my my weeks in real estate based on that same kind of like mission planning, right? And that gave me efficiency, number one. It gave me additional capacity, number two. And like you put efficiency and capacity together and now you have competitive advantage in business. You talked about a little bit working with clients. Talk about creating life like Jake. How did you get involved and what has been memorable about that experience for you? Dude, it was um, it was me needing myself. It was me needing this person that I that you see now that I never had in my life. It was me needing to become this person and stop running from being this person because that's what I realized. I realized that wholesome, the, the lack of wholesomeness, the void in my heart, all the drug use, all the identity issues, the crises of confidence and personality and everything was because I was running from what I was really meant to do and be. And that's to be a good souled, good hearted person that's positive and trying to help himself. But while he's helping himself, giving that away to the world, right? So like becoming someone that I admire, essentially, I didn't have a hero that I admired. My father was not the best guy. He was a great sportsman, but not the best gentleman, not somebody that I really look up to in the sense of like, He's really wholesome and, and awesome and has conscience congruence. He didn't. And I needed that. That's what I was missing all the time. All that food that I ate, all the drugs that I did, all the girls I was with, all the bullshit, all the trips, all the decadent, pleasurable luxuries and thinking that's what I needed to get fulfillment and happiness. It was not. It was lacking from within. So once I finally figured that out, it's just been a mission to try to give that away to people and make them find the same thing. So it started on a small scale of me just kind of testing theories and models with friends and, and close family for years, kind of behind a closed door of, okay, I learned this in the military. I learned this in work, or I learned this in addiction, or I learned this in abuse and struggle. I learned this in childhood or, or you know, neglect or divorce or abandonment. And I had this whole repertoire of experience. And then when I started to realize that it could be leveraged to create an understanding of yourself and to be able to help if it could get me out of these situations and head spaces and then combine that with some discipline and leadership from the military and understanding of athletic performance and nutrition and, and dietetics that I did from bodybuilding and da, 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 like these things stacked up. And all of a sudden I was like, man, I've kind of got this like working model of how to friggin' feel better. That's gotta be something worth selling, right? That like, that's got, that's valuable. And it was like, oh man, it's Eureka because that's what saved my life. Mm -hmm. prioritizing my health, prioritizing my personal happiness. My, that's why I say happy, healthy, and wealthy, right? Like by prioritizing my happiness, my health, and my sense of personal wealth, that's how I saved my life. And if it could work for me, why couldn't it work for anybody else? Something you do on content creating on social media is you really kind of give your point of view or really share. And I think that separates you from maybe other coaches that are out there or people in the fitness world, because you're being real about your story, about who you are. And you talked about really going with being you. It, is it very important to share that with clients or just people on social media, your story, because you never know who you might hit 
and they can relate or they might be struggling and they can be able to connect with you on something that you have gone through? I think it's really important. I'm so glad you asked that question, Alex, because it was a driving force for me to do this the way that I do it because I was so sick and tired of seeing all of the frauds online when, when this really started to blow up in like 2014, 15, 16 and fitness just started to explode really digitally and online with personalities and um, influencers. I knew so many of these people, especially in New York. I was living there. I was in the industry myself. I was fitness modeling at the time. So like I was right there. I was at ground zero. And to see the people that were excelling and getting all this praise and, and light were guys and gals that I used to party with. And yeah. I don't just mean having a good time. I mean like getting down and dirty, partying, you know, not kinds of behavior that you'd want people to know about if you're trying to sell life tips and promote yeah. vitality and, you know, good, like, I remember watching people with words like the word mindfulness, I just despised. And from like 2016 to 2018, because I would hear friends, you know, talking about gratitude and wellness and manifestation and mindfulness. I was just shut the fuck up. Like I was literally <laughs> just with you blowing down, you know, bag after bag of Coke and like, it's just, I saw a lot of fallacy in it. So that motivated me. That drove me to be like, you know what? All right. You're not going to last because eventually the chickens are going to come home to roost. And I'm going to show the world what legitimacy looks like to where it is undeniable to where I know who you really are inside. I know what you cry to. I know what you hide from because you've talked to me about it. I've seen you do it. And I've seen how you behave in the dark when no one else is looking. And look what it does for you as far as in what you've been able to make a career out of on bullshit. Mm -hmm. And I was like, imagine what the response would be to honesty, to yeah. just absolute brutal honesty and radical candor. And like the beauty of that is that it's honest, right? Meaning like if these people could make careers and livings well over, I don't know how they could live with themselves doing it, but like people responded to that. I was just like, oh my God, man, like, this is that's who you think is cool. That's you. You like her. She's ridiculous. You know, you like this guy like, oh, my God. Now, was there jealousy in that for me? I don't know. Maybe. But I definitely saw through a lot of the BS and knew these people for who they really were and said, well, if the world is willing to accept that and find that of value and entertainment, I'm going to give them a dose of something they're really going to fucking freak out about then and say, here it is, man. I might look like this today, but it is far from who I used to be, you know, and say, I've been there. I've been depressed. I've been a child of divorce and had to grow up with a woman that my father cheated on my mother with for eight years behind her back and then forced my mother out of our lives financially and, and politically so that you could gain custody over us. And we never got to see our mom. And then we wake up the next day and it's you and this woman. And we have to have this front on the entire city of new Orleans for our entirety of childhood. And every one of my friends that I ever met and touched knew this person as assumingly my mother. And I kept my mouth shut about it for my whole life. And then 30 years later, finally confront you about it. Da 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 da. And you wonder why I did the things I did thought the way that I thought felt the way that I felt 
Um, and that's just the beginning of it. Not to call that a sob story, but learning to use that as a way of empathizing with other people and saying like, why not be honest about it? Why not tell you that I struggled with drugs too, that I struggled with binge eating disorder, that I struggled with addictions to pornography, that I struggled with, you know, misplaced understandings of sex and being a gentleman and drinking beyond, uh, you know, <laughs> needs of things and consuming and consuming and being egotistical and chauvinistic and just anybody can smile and look cool on camera and post about the cool stuff. But like, tell me who you really are. And so that's what I've been doing, man. And I'm glad, you know, you, it resonated with you, the message. And uh, I hope it resonates with other people too, because we live now in a world of truth, meaning like you do anything, like people are going to try to call you out on it, right? As far as in truth is used against us, unfortunately, more than it is in our favor, um, which I think is tough. But if I can use it in a good way, I think that's a good thing. I feel like the fitness industry, especially with me, not even, I mean, I'm not, I work out, I see the videos and stuff, but like you just mentioned, it's so hard to believe any of these people because they're not being real or authentic. Like for me, I have my challenge as a type one diabetic. So I resonate with the type one diabetic fitness coaches and stuff because they know what I'm struggling with and they're going through something similar. But I like to hear people's story on why did they work out? And then they talk about those struggles because to me, I can connect with that a little bit more than someone that just posts one video of them working out. And then that's it. That's all they do. They just get that content and then they're done. And they look like that. It's like, well, why do I care? Like you're not being real. <laughs> so, but you just see, you just scroll through Instagram reels and you see like 30 of them, but your content it's just so real and authentic. And now even hearing little bits from that, but now really getting to know you and hearing your story, it shows the true person you are. And I'm glad that I've gotten this opportunity to learn more about you. Nowadays, what do you enjoy doing? I know you are in Florida, so I'm jealous because you're by nice <laughs> weather every single day. But what do you enjoy when you wake up? What do you like to do? What are something maybe someone that's listening may not know about you? I mean, first off, thanks for sharing about your diabetic status. That's vulnerable, you know, and um, I champion you for your vulnerability you. and sharing that. I would also challenge you now and say, and to use, you know, to rise to the challenge of, dude, come freaking work with me and cure your diabetes How about that <laughs> like you think you think it's not possible but like i can help you do that not with mechanics not with medicine but with just food my man literally i've gotten people off prescription drugs insulin diabetes cured gone seen gone forever i've seen cancers go away literally girlfriend of mine ovarian cancer told she's never going to have children. She's going to have to have surgery, chemo, the whole thing, get removal of the, the ovaries or cervix. I forget what, but mainly that she would never have children. 28 years old at the time. Went to Sloan Kettering, MD Anderson, all of them that you have to do this. You have to do this. She said, F no cured with food, cancer and remission tumors gone. Da, 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 da. No surgery, no nothing. She's a happy, healthy mother of an eight year old. Now, that, you know, otherwise would have never happened. But like, 
the power of food, man. Mm -hmm. The single most impactful thing we can do in regards to our health, Alex, is controlling what we put into our freaking mouths. So the first thing that I think about in the day and something that's interesting about myself is that I am absolutely on the side of Hippocrates in the sense that let thy food be thy medicine and thy medicine be thy food. It is so powerful, man. People can say I'm a kook or whatnot, but the stories that I get to see every single day, the miracles that are not miracles to me, but they're just, this is what happens as a result when you put the right formula together. And everything about you, for example, Alex, is perfect. The way you were born from the moment you came out of the womb, you're a living miracle. The diabetes that's going on is simply a abundance of one thing or a deficiency over the another at the cellular level, meaning you've got circuits that are together that should be open or circuits that are closed or rather open that should be closed. And that literally usually happens from the smallest little, most insignificant, can't be seen by the eye, deficiency of some kind. And it's usually related to a carbohydrate. So the diet that I put people on not only cures their depression, not only gets them off anxiety, but elevates their libidos. It changes their relationships with people. It has them having mental clarity, a sense of happiness and fulfillment that they've never been able to understand in their lives. Unbounded energy, changes in sleep. I've gotten guys off sleep apnea machines who needed their Darth Vader mask, who snored for their for 20 years and their wives hated sleeping next to them, but now they don't freaking snore anymore because of what they were eating, man. I'm about to be working with a guy that has two little girls with mitochondrial disease that have been on meds and in hospitals and having to do this shit in psychotherapy since they were children. And they're still freaking children, but I'm going to cure them too. A buddy of mine that I've known since we were in first grade that's been prescribed a Xanax since he was an adolescent. So it's 30 years of taking pills for anxiety and depression. He hasn't taken a pill in over six weeks. Wow. And he's taken one every single day for the last 30 years, at least one, every single day for the last 30 years, and he hasn't taken one in over six weeks off of freaking food, man. So, again, to rise to the challenge, I'm telling you, brother, you like sticking yourself with a pin? If you like having to check that all the time and worry about what you're eating and what you're doing, if you like doing that, keep doing it. But if you want to not ever do that again, the answer staring you in the face, man. The final question I'll ask you, for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? Number one, always do the right thing, no matter what. Choose purpose over pleasure. Be a person for others. Always remember it takes all the people to make a world and have the curiosity of a child. You do that, you'll be all right. And if you're all right, your world is going to be all right. That might sound simple and kind of poetic and maybe, I don't know, cliche and cheesy, but like it's simple and it's highly effective. And that's the beauty of it. It's the same thing with, again, with the body, with the mind, with what I'm talking about with nutrition and that equation that X plus Y equals Z is like simplicity is a matter of fact. And when something works and it's simple, that is a matter of fact. Difficult or not, or easy, that's up to you. 
If you think it's hard, it's going to be hard. Your thoughts, our thoughts, Alex, are things. And people oftentimes are their own worst enemies by getting in their way with societal perceptions, perceived norms, familial, you know, insistences on this way or that way, or this is wrong or this is right. But if you learn to live in line with your conscience, to really listen to it, to walk with it, what I call conscience congruence, you'll never go wrong. Well, Jake, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people, and we are excited to see what the future looks like for you. It's great to be here, Alex. I'm glad to be on the show. And and same to you, the message, uh, your message, you know, resonated with me equally. That's why I reached out. That's why I wanted to speak with you. And um, same thing, share that to your listeners as well. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe on all major audio platforms, and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode in video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.